We are returning to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 10 to 12. And today we're going to talk about verse 12. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 10, going through verse 12. For it is for this, that this refers to our personal godliness, the spiritual health of the church. It is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe or command or require and teach these things. And in the process, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Let's pray. Father, take these words of yours and give them life to us. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 12 begins with the words, Let no one look down on your youthfulness. And in youth group circles, these words have provided inspiration for numerous sermons, Bible studies, Sunday school classes, youth group meetings, camps, and books for young people. And this is good. I am not speaking against this at all. It's a good thing if these presentations use the rest of the verse to explain, first of all, how young people are to go about this, and second, what kind of life they are to lead so that no one has a just cause to look down on their youthfulness. There is legitimate reason to look down on our immaturity or our youthfulness. Especially when we give them legitimate reasons. But, we are to lead a kind of life that removes that legitimate reason. Doesn't mean people won't, but we want to remove just cause for looking down on us. The reality is, it is probable Timothy was in his early 30s when Paul wrote this. And by that time, he bore the responsibility of being the leader of the church in Ephesus. Which means these words are not just for teenagers. But no one look down on your youth, Paul wrote to a fellow who was most probably in his 30s and the leader of the church. And so we're going to apply this verse to all of us, young and old alike, because for me, from my perspective, it has much to say about being an example of those who believe. An example in relation to your reputation, having the character qualities needed to earn and therefore deserve genuine respect, and living according to what you claim to believe and teach. So given the context, as I understand it, the purpose of these words at the beginning of verse 12 is to caution us against letting anyone deter us from promoting or encouraging or exhorting them to believe that godliness in daily living is important. And it's as important to the Christian 
as salvation is important. So it doesn't matter who that person might be, an older person like myself, or someone who thinks they're superior, someone who's in a position of authority. If you are exhorting folks to live a godly life, don't let them deter you. But not letting anyone deter us from presenting the need for godliness is only half of Paul's exhortation. And it's important to see both sides of this. The other half deals with the requirement to live and speak in such a way as to remove any legitimate reason for someone to disregard or discount or try to deter our efforts at promoting godliness. See, the reality is when a portion of our daily living contradicts what we claim to believe or say to others, we give them a justifiable reason to label us hypocrites, to reject what we're saying, and to take action to deter us from saying it to others. And when this happens, We are fulfilling Ralph Emerson's Proverbs, which I would guess most of us have heard, if not all of us. Your actions speak so loudly, I cannot hear what you are saying. So for this reason, the scriptures, God, through Paul, the scriptures call us to be such good examples of how a Christian ought to live that no one could find a legitimate reason to, to ignore us or seek to silence us. And again, this isn't just for teenagers. This is for all of us, myself included. For Christians, the principle goes like this. Living according to what you say you believe affects your reputation, and it affects that for the good. A good reputation affects the respect you deserve and are likely to receive from those around you. When you are respected, those listening to you are more likely to take what you say seriously. If you're not respected, if you don't live according to what you claim you believe or say or call others to live, then you're not going to be taken seriously and you won't be respected but deservedly so. The second half of verse 12 calls us to these things, and it says, In speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So in preparation for looking at each of these five qualities, I do want to point out three things. This is just to prepare us. First, The first two qualities, that is, speech and conduct, refer to what people see and hear, what's going on on the outside of us. The second three qualities, love, faith, and purity, are what is going on inside of us and determines what comes out of us. It determines the quality of our speech and our conduct. Second, You can try to hide your lack of love, faith, and purity by saying and behaving as a Christian ought. But you can be sure that your lack of love, your lack of faith and purity, will shine through at enough times 
and in enough ways to expose your hypocrisy. We can all make ourselves look good when we are managing ourselves well and we're in settings where it is reasonably easy to make ourselves look good. And some of us can even make ourselves look good when we are in very difficult, challenging situations. But none of us will continue to look good unless we are truly good when we let our hair down, when we relax, when we finally just let ourselves be ourselves and something challenges us. And that's when the ungood, the not so good comes out. Third, though age is a factor in determining who should be in a position of authority, even in our own country, the uh, president has to be, I think it's 30 years old or 33, there's an age, 35, there's an age requirement. But character is even more of a factor. So yes, age is a factor, but we ought to make, as believers, character even more of a factor. In the earliest days of the church, the disciples affirmed this truth when dealing with a conflict over care of the widows. And I want to read this story from Acts chapter 6, just verses 1 through 3. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Imagine discrimination in the church. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men, so there's age, seven men of good reputation, there's character, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Notice the emphasis was stronger on character than on age. Look for seven men with quality character, godly character. Why? Because they could be trusted to do the right thing. All right, so character, the character qualities that Paul addresses in this one verse starts with speech. And that deals with how we talk to the people in our lives. Be they family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers, or fellow Christians. How do you talk to the people in your life? When talking to others, our tone of voice, choice of words, the timing of what we are saying, all sends a message beyond the intended message itself. Of course, sometimes our tone of voice is intentionally sending a message beyond the words themselves or our choice of words. I don't know how many of you really listen to yourselves carefully, but if you are in a setting where other people are talking and somebody's upset or somebody's there's some kind of conflict going on or there's hurt feelings or someone is telling you their story about how they've been mistreated, it is very easy for the person doing the talking to use 
exaggerations, to use unkind words, uh, to use derogatory terms when they are referring to the person they're talking about. That sends a message beyond the message itself. It isn't just the story they're telling you. They're telling you how they feel about the person, how they see the person. And we do the same thing. When we add tone of voice, choice of words, and timing, we either add something that is good or something that is harmful, something that hurts the communication. There are three easy ways to discern how you talk to those around you if you're interested. And of course, I believe all of us should be interested. We should want to know what we sound like to the people around us. So here's three suggested ways that can help you discern what you sound like to them, as well as learn the inferences, your tone of voice, choice of words, and timing adds to the message. First, ask God for discernment, not once, but a thousand times if you must until you gain that discernment. Ask God for discernment regarding what you sound like and the inferences you are conveying, especially when talking to those nearest and dearest to you. Something that I've done, and I believe God has answered my prayer. I went for several days, I definitely was communicating a bad attitude to Barbie. And as I was listening to myself, came to my senses and realized what I was doing. And was I had to go and ask her forgiveness and get rid of the bad attitude. For me... That began, that kind of discernment began with asking God to teach me how to hear myself, to help me know what I sound like, what I'm coming across as. The second way to discern how you talk to those around you is to listen to yourself as if you are the other person. Actually, listen for your tone. Listen for your choice of words. Listen for the comments that you throw into your message that don't need to be there. Listen to yourself. And if you will listen to yourself, you will begin to hear what you sound like when you're talking to the people around you. And the third method that is helpful Ask those dearest to you, those nearest to you. Ask them what you sound like in certain situations or what you sounded like in a recent interaction. So, you know, if you've never asked them before, you could ask for, well, what do I sound like in when, when it seems like I'm unhappy with you or things aren't going well or I seem frustrated? What do I sound like? Or you could say, you know, we just had this interaction yesterday. What did I sound like? 
again, if you aren't listening to yourself, you're not likely to hear what you really sounded like. You're just thinking you had to get a message across. The Bible has a number of scriptures that address our speech, and I've narrowed them down to six for the sake of time. I want to begin with Psalm, Psalm 37, verses 30 and 31. And I'm going to uh, adapt it to today's teaching, so bear with me. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. In other words, he's not just shooting off his mouth. He's not adding what I call editorial comments, little put-downs, little exaggerations along the way. No, his mouth utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. Why? Verse 31. The law, or the scripture, or the word of God, the law of his God is in his heart. He has implanted the truth of God's word in himself, so that his mouth is then constrained by the truth that's in him. And because of that, his steps, or I'm going to add the word speech, do not slip. If you want to talk better, get to know the word of God better and what it says about our attitudes, our mindset, the way we should look at other people. I mean, just even the whole idea of love your enemies. Never return evil for evil. Never express abusive speech. There's plenty of things in the word of God that can condition how we talk. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 21. The wise in heart will be called understanding. In other words, they're going to talk to other people in a way that makes them appear to be folks who are willing to understand what the other person has to say, what their situation is, why they're doing what they're doing. And sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. What do many of us think increases persuasiveness? A stick, anger, harsh words. I mean, isn't that what we fall back on? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. I'm just taking out uh, five words of this whole verse We are to speak the truth in love. Love is to condition what comes out of our mouth. That doesn't mean we can't speak the truth. No, we're supposed to speak the truth in love, conditioned by love. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You can't get to that kind of talking without thinking ahead of time what you should say. One of the things that was very helpful to me in the early days of working on this in my own life was when I had to talk with somebody and they weren't there and I had the time, I would write out what I wanted to say because I was very prone, and you could ask my wife, she could confirm this, I was very prone to throwing in little jabs, little editorial comments, little sarcasms, things along the way that weren't necessary for the conversation. They were just hurting the other person. They were making it harder for the other person to hear, but they were making me feel better. So if I wrote it out, I began to see on the paper these unnecessary parts of the communication 
and started leaving them out. One day you can do it just without having to write it out, but that's a, for me, that was a good place to begin. First Corinthians chapter 14, verses 8 through 9. This is an especially important, not that the rest aren't, please, but we often fail with this. Too many of us fail with this. For if, and by the way, this doesn't deal with just communication like we're talking about today. It's about speaking in tongues or prophesying in the church. But I am wrestling it out of that context and using it to convey a truth that is also true and the scriptures can be used for that. If the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. Or I'm going to take that last phrase and say, you're going to speak something that's so nebulous, so general, the other person who's listening to you can take it any way they want. I don't know if you're aware, but we are very prone as humans to speak indistinctly, to not be clear, to not be straightforward, to not say it honestly like it really is. We don't have to be mean. We don't have to be disrespectful. We don't have to be unkind. But if the speech is not clear, how is the other person to know what we're really trying to convey? You walk away thinking, I told them. And then they fail again and you think, how come they don't listen? But the reality is you probably haven't told them clearly. And yes, they're wrong. They are totally wrong for not trying to figure out what you're trying to tell them. But that is so human that the burden rests on both sides, the speaker and the listener. James 1, 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart by thinking he's religious, this man's religion is worthless. If your Christianity does not affect your speech, James says it's worthless. When we speak honestly and respectfully, when we use words and a tone of voice that convey an honest interest to understand first and, if needed, condemn second. When we come at people with sympathy for their situation and when we show compassion and mercy when criticizing or condemning, we honor God, we honor our Christian faith, our religion, and we show ourselves an example of those who believe. The second quality is conduct. Conduct is the sum of all your behaviors. Now, I know we use those two words kind of interchangeably, behavior and conduct. But the reality is behavior refers to specific incidences, conduct to the sum of all those incidences. Whether it's good days and bad days, with loved ones or with enemies, when you're tired or frazzled or rested and refreshed or at home or at church, conduct is the fullest expression of of who you are in all of those settings. And conduct is also the fullest expression of who you are on the inside. For example, we encounter various situations, we experience various circumstances, 
We deal with various kinds of people day after day, and how we deal with each of these things becomes the sum of all our behaviors. And that's what makes up conduct. And so Paul is not just saying, you know, how you behave in certain settings. No, he's saying, what is your conduct? What does all of your behaviors, when put together, say about you? Jesus confirmed this, by the way, that conduct is this summation, and also that it is an indicator of who we are, because this is how God is going to judge us, by the way, on our conduct. Jesus confirmed this in Matthew 16, 27. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds or conduct. And this truth is affirmed by a number of other scriptures. Jeremiah 17, 10, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and three places in Revelation along with several others. I won't give you all of them. And so because conduct is the sum total, and it's also an expression of who we really are, who we are from the inside out, the word of God exhorts us to be holy in all our behavior. 1 Peter 1.15 It exhorts us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippians 1.27 What does it mean to be worthy of the gospel of Christ? What value does the gospel of Christ have? Is it the truth? Does it save us? Does it bring us into new life? Is it from God himself? Do we live then in a way that is worthy of that truth? The gospel of Christ. And then it exhorts us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. How do we have to live to be worthy of the Lord and to please him in all respects? Colossians 1.10 And it exhorts us to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 The point is, is that when we walk in a manner that is of equal value, to the calling, to the salvation, to the truth of God, then our conduct should rise higher and higher and certainly get a lot closer to what it ought to be, if not become what it ought to be as followers of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, the Bible addresses the problem of bad conduct being a legitimate reason for others to ignore what we say. For example, in those two verses, words that lack the conduct of love to back them up become painful to the hearer's ears and show us to be unworthy of being considered important. When our words lack the conduct of love to back them up, these two verses in Corinthians say, it becomes painful to the hearer's ears. Do you understand that? It hurts them to have to hear what you're saying when you're not backing up your words with the conduct of love. 
and it gives them a reason to consider you unimportant. I'm reasonably certain all of you are aware of at least some of your behaviors. Like if we went around the room, we could ask you, you know, do you have a behavior that you're aware of from just today that was either good or bad? I would guess every one of us could point out one thing. But are you aware of your conduct? Are you aware of the sum total of your behaviors? What the message comes across? What it says about you? Are you aware of how your behaviors and your overall conduct affects others? Do you care? Do you actually care how your behaviors, how your overall conduct affects the people around you? I know from my own life it is easy to care more about how your behavior affects me. But if we are going to live in such a way as to be an example of those who believe, we must care about how our behavior affects those around us. Love. Third quality. The love is shown on the outside. It is built on who we are on the inside. And though anyone can give love to get love or give love in response to being loved, the purest motive for giving love is seeking the good of those who are in some way affected by your choices and behavior, and that includes God. Those who genuinely love know that love is to be outward flowing, not inward flowing. It is about giving, not receiving. Now it's true, all of us want to be loved. And in my opinion, this is a God-given desire. There is nothing wrong. It is good to want to be loved. Yet in a sinful world, the odds are slim that you will be loved like you ought to be loved by anyone other than God. I maintain... And you don't have to agree with this. You can see it completely different. It's fine with me. But I maintain that it is probable there will only be one or two or three people who will really love you. I mean genuinely love you in this life. And that would be really good if you had that many. There's a lot of people who will be loving, but really love you. That's a pretty rare commodity. So what are we to do? The natural or most common response is to withhold love to those who aren't loving us. And then to replace the love we ought to be giving with hurt or withdrawal or the silent treatment or unkindness or anger or abusive words or bitterness or on and on. And yet such responses go against Romans 13.10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love does no wrong. It doesn't matter how I'm treated. When it comes to love, it matters how I treat those around me. Love does no wrong 
to a neighbor. Love is therefore the fulfillment of the law. In other words, when we hurt back, when we withdraw, when we give the silent treatment, when we are sarcastic, when we are abusive in return to not getting the love we think we deserve or we want or we feel we need, we become as sinful as the one failing to love us. And that means we're both wrong. So what are we to do? As Christians, we are to love those around us as God loves us. And this is where trusting God, faith, is so vital. You have to be convinced you are safe in God's hands to give love as you ought to give love. It's even and especially to those who aren't so loving. We are to make giving love more important than getting love. We are to make being loving more important than being loved. And it's in this way that we become an example of those who believe. The fourth quality is faith. Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This is uh, probably a little known scripture. I doubt that any of you have memorized it, but it's possible one or two of you have. But this is a profound statement. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So think with me as, as we look at this. Did we not receive Christ Jesus by faith? Then we are to move forward in living the Christian life by that same kind of faith. If we believe the gospel of salvation, then we are to believe what the scriptures say about how to live, whether we're children or teens or adults in a marriage, as parents, as workers, as neighbors, as citizens, as church members. If we believe the gospel of salvation, then we are to believe what the word of God says about how to live. As you received him, so walk in him. If believing the gospel of salvation required appropriate action on our part, a response equal to the faith, then believing what the scriptures say about how to live also requires appropriate action on our part. To do otherwise is to try to live the Christian life by something other than faith. And this is impossible. As the scripture says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6 And James 2.20 says, Faith without works is useless. That is, faith that does not show itself in your choices and behavior that kind of faith is useless. And so, like Christian love, Christian faith is shown on the outside. But the outward manifestations of our faith comes from who we trust the most. And the two most prominent options are God and self. Who do you trust the most? God or self? And that is determined by who we are on the inside. Therefore, may we be people of faith. And as people of faith, may we trust God implicitly so that our conduct is an example of those who live the Christian life by faith. The fifth quality is purity. As with love and faith, purity of life is shown on the outside, but its life source and motivation comes from 
within, from purity of heart and purity of mind. And though we can and ought to apply the ideal of purity to most areas of life, it is often, today, applied to sexual morality. And it ought to be, since so many in the world and the church lack purity of heart and mind in relation to sexual morality. But we are not to limit our pursuit of purity to this one area, because we need purity in other areas as well, including the way we think, what we desire, how we talk, and how we behave. When we bring injustice into our behavior, when we allow ourselves to discriminate against somebody, when we become arrogant and look down on somebody as less than us, we are acting with impurities in our mind, in our attitudes, in our values and beliefs. One example of impurity is double-mindedness. A pure mind is single-minded. And one of the ways to pursue purity of mind is to use Philippians 4.8 to put boundaries around and give direction to our thinking and our pondering. This is simply taking the word of God and using it to evaluate what we're doing in our mind. And if we want purity of mind, if we want to be single-minded, Philippians 4.8 is just one verse, I understand, but it's a good verse to give us the kind of boundaries, the kind of measuring stick, the kind of understanding that we can use to evaluate. Are these pure thoughts or impure thoughts? It's interesting to me that Jesus said, it is the pure of heart who see God. Matthew 5, 8. So not only does purity of heart enable you to be an example of Christian living, just as purity of mind does. It also enables you to encounter God in personal, intimate ways that far exceed encountering God through knowledge alone. It's not the easiest thing to get to purity of heart. And it's probably equally as hard to hold on to it but it does open the door to encountering God, seeing God, experiencing God in ways that most of us don't even imagine. Let me conclude with these comments. Every one of us is an example of something. We may never be a perfect example of what a Christian ought to be, but we ought to do our best with God's help and empowerment. We ought to do our best to make a sincere and planned effort to grow and change and mature so that we continue to become more and more of what a Christian ought to be. And I say planned because it's easy to talk about something and never do it. We should visit so-and-so. We should call so-and-so. I should send a thank you card. I should do this. I should do that. It is so easy to talk about things, but until you make a plan, it's not likely to happen. Albert Barnes, who was a believer who wrote commentaries, said, A minister should so live 
that if all his people should closely follow his example, their salvation would be secure and they would make the highest possible attainments in piety or holiness. So I like that statement. But I want to change it. So David Bain says, we all should so live that those around us can follow our words and deeds toward a genuine faith in God and a sincere life of godliness. Remember the exhortation? We want to live in such a way that we are an example of those who believe. So may we, in the daily affairs of life, be that kind of example.